Again, welcome uh, to New Community. Um, Julie mentioned a little bit about a meeting right afterwards. I want to give just a few more thoughts about that. Uh, so immediately following the service, if you are a parent of a youth or if you are a youth leader or if you're someone who would be interested in being a youth leader volunteer or being involved in some particular way with the youth group over this coming year, after the service we're going to meet right in this side room and go over uh, some of the details of what the summer will look like and then into the fall. Uh, So we'd love to have you be there. Also, um, I think Julie failed to mention that on the 23rd of June is when we'll have an opportunity just to thank Carter for his last uh, year with us and kind of kick-starting the youth group. And uh, so that'll be on the 23rd uh, in service, praying over him, and then uh, there'll be a little youth activity the evening of the 23rd. All right, let me pray, and then uh, we will jump in this morning. Father, we um, are grateful, we're thankful that um, your praise can always be on our lips because your faithfulness is new every morning, uh, that you continually bring goodness into our lives. We pray that we would acknowledge it, that we would recognize it, that we wouldn't take it for granted, but would be so thankful for all that you do. I pray that this morning you would speak to us. I pray that you would open our eyes to what your text says and that you would open our hearts to what it is we are being asked uh, as kingdom people, how we're being challenged to live. May you speak to us in that way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to begin with a photo this morning, but before we put the photo up, I want to warn you just for a second that the photo you're about to see uh, is, for some, might be shocking in church that we would show this photo uh, because it represents a vulgar phrase that is used commonly in our uh, world, Uh, and it's obviously not something we would promote, but the idea will make sense after you see the photo, all right? So here's the photo, a member of the royal family. Just offering uh, some gestures towards other people. Um, But the reason I show this photo is because I think it's very, very important. It illustrates a very important idea, and that is the danger of a single story. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. There is a danger that all of us have in seeing a particular image or hearing a particular story understanding the narrative that that story represents, and then only seeing that picture or that narrative from one single perspective, okay? The danger might be in the fact that you have the wrong vantage point. There's danger in a single story. Here is the same picture from a different angle. That leads you to an entirely different narrative. It causes you to think completely different about that moment in time because there is a deep danger in a single story. Uh, This week, we have the fine pleasure of going through a story in Genesis chapter 19, one that I think has long had a single narrative. It is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I have titled the talk, The H Word, 
This is a story that many of us have heard from the time we were little kids. It is a story that maybe you saw projected on a flannel graph as the teacher had little flannel graph people flee from the city as fire came raining down and the entire village or the entire town and all of its people were consumed with fire from heaven. It's a lovely little story. It's one that we often tell our kids and put in kids' Bibles and make into kids' videos. Just kidding, we never do that. We somehow skip right over that story. Um, Because generally we come to this story with a lot of assumptions. We make assumptions about what the main point of the story is, and those assumptions cause us, I believe, to often miss the kingdom takeaway. They cause us to miss some of the most vital elements of the story because there is a deep danger in a single story. Let me give you a quick reminder of the way Sodom and Gomorrah is described in Genesis 19. Two angels arrive at the gates of Sodom. Lot meets them at the gate, prevails upon them to stay at his house for the night and provides hospitality to them. All of the men of the city, young and old, surround the house. They demand that Lot bring out the men who are visiting so that they can know them, which obviously is a Hebrew euphemism for sex. Lot begs them not to do it and then offers his two virgin daughters instead. The men of the city threatened to do to Lot what they were going to do to the men. And the angels pull Lot back into the house. The angels close the door. The angels then uh, have all the men go blind for a period of time. And uh, so that they can't find the door. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what's going on. In the meantime, while they're in the midst of blindness, Lot goes to his son-in-laws or future son-in-laws, says to them, hey, you should go with us. God's going to rain down fire on the whole city. They don't believe him. They stay behind. So Lot gathers his family, takes them out of the city. And once they're safely out, God rains down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah and completely destroys the city and all of its inhabitants. That is a summary of the beautiful story we will look at this morning. Uh, My hope is this, that we will not look at this story uh, through one particular lens. Uh, My hope is also that we will look at it with fresh eyes, setting aside preconceived ideas and just asking ourselves the question, what is the text saying? What's it trying to communicate? So I think there's several keys to understanding. Uh, Here they are, and this is what we're going to glance at this morning. We need to know the context We need to examine the text, we need to consider history, and then we need to think kingdom. So, to know the context, as many of you know, when you study the Bible, context is so vital. What does the text say? What does the text around it say? What does the surrounding chapters and uh, books communicate about the particular text? All of that leads to a deeper and fuller understanding of what's being communicated. So I want to provide two links that I think are really important to this uh, story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The first is this, that Sodom and Gomorrah is linked in hero stories with Noah. I described this a couple weeks ago when I talked about Noah and the flood. 
So the Israelites at the time of receiving the Torah, the time of understanding Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, etc., um, were a curious people wondering why do we find ourselves in the midst of exile? Why are we living in a foreign land and why do we have our enemies? They're asking that question. And the scriptures are written to provide answers to people that were the original readers, not necessarily to us. And so as the story was written, it's communicating two different enemies that came to be for the people of Israel. The first is the flood story. And let me remind you, there was one hero, Noah. All of the other people in the entire story were completely wicked. Everyone in the entire story was killed except for one family. Only one family survives. After the story, immediately the hero of the story, so Noah in the first one, gets drunk. The hero and the child of the hero do something sexually inappropriate. It results in a curse, and then you have enemy number one, the Canaanites. That's how they became enemies with the Canaanites. So where did they come about? Well, that's how they came about. The story also goes that there was another hero. That hero was Lot. He was the sole hero in the story. Everyone else in the entire city was what? Wicked. Everyone in the entire city was killed except for one family. One family survives. Immediately following the story, the hero of the story gets drunk. The daughters of the hero do something sexually inappropriate with their dad. It results in a baby and a curse. Enemy number two. You see the parallel between the two stories. This link is communicating this is the way that the enemies of Israel came about. In addition, each of the stories... Noah and the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah is linked with the chapter directly in front of it. So Genesis 7 is the flood. It's linked to Genesis 6. Genesis 19 is Sodom and Gomorrah. It's linked to Genesis 18. That's a teaser. I'll come back to that later. Okay? Which takes us to examining the text. First, we want to talk about what the story is not about. What the story is not about. This story does not serve as a blanket condemnation of homosexuality. Now, unfortunately, the church has perpetuated the idea that uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed for its sexual wickedness. That is the general idea that is communicated. But I want to, this morning, put that interpretation to the test. So, the text goes like this. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening... And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. But he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Okay? So I want to go over a few reasons why I think the text communicates that this is not a blanket statement 
against homosexuality. First, the text says, but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. The text says very clearly in Hebrew, as well as in this English translation, that all of the men of the city, young and old, surrounded the house. Now, if the text would have said certain men of the city or many of the men of the city gathered, then it's quite possible we could conclude that the men at the door may have been motivated by homosexual desire. But the text clearly says, both young and old, all of the people to the last man. Now, to suggest that every man and every boy in Sodom was homosexual is simply not credible. You cannot have a town with lots of little kids running around and a full, full town, men and women included, with marriages and the like, and have every single man and boy in the city be homosexual. Something other than homosexual desire seems to be at work. Which leads to point two. There is an angry mob, and that angry mob was about power and domination, not about sexual pleasure. Now, this is an incredibly vulgar story of an attempted gang rape. Gang rape is not about pleasure. It's about humiliation. It's about establishing dominance. The idea that the men wanted to bully or humiliate or dominate the visitors is probably a more and better explanation that they simply wanted sexual desire. You have to understand that the people of Sodom were in a time in which one of the cultural norms in war was to capture or defeat an enemy and then rape all of the men and young boys as part of the war demonstration meaning that they would win the victory and then they would rape the men and the boys, not as a sign of sexual desire, but as a sign of domination, power, shame, humiliation, control, fear, whatever language you want to use. And we understand this instinctively. We know that that's what's being done in this particular thing. Third, Lot offered his daughters in the place of the visitors. The text says this, bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now, Lot, in an effort to save his guests, offered his virgin daughters to the men at the door. Now, first off, Lot's offer is reprehensible. It is utterly disgusting. Now, in that culture, women were absolutely seen only as property. So to him, that would have been not a illogical decision nor would it have been um, received as like a shock, like it would be in today's context. Regardless of how they viewed women in the past, the offer is still incredibly disgusting. But the horrible offer does lead an important, to an important clue. See, Lot was a resident of the city. 
Lot would have known all of the men that would have been outside of his door. In fact, he referred to them as brothers. If all of the men were gay in the whole city, Lot would have known it. Now, if you were Lot and a group of men known to be homosexual became angry, gathered as a mob outside of your door, beating down your door and demanding that you bring out the male guests for them to have sex with, would it make any sense to offer a woman instead? If the men were motivated by homosexual desire, offering them heterosexual sex instead would have been nonsensical. Why would you do that? That's not what they're there for. So he's obviously offering something that he thinks will satiate their desire, and yet it was not same sex. Now, there might be some of you in the room, just assuming, that are maybe still holding on to the idea that this passage is a broad, sweeping statement about homosexuality. It again, it is something we've heard for much of our lives, and so perhaps that is still kind of residing within you. So let me give you one more little test to uh, consider uh, that might be helpful. Suppose for a moment, let's just imagine, that the two angels in the story had been women, but the story otherwise unfolded exactly the same way. The men of Sodom see two visitors come. The visitors are taken into Lot's home. They're two women that are angels. The men come. They clamor at the door. They say, bring the visitors out. Let us know them. Euphemism for sex, or in this case, rape. Now imagine that that was the exact same scenario and God destroyed the whole city. Do you think that any of us would conclude that this was a blanket condemnation of heterosexuality? Would we all go, therefore, God does not want heterosexuality among anyone because of this example? Of course you wouldn't. It wouldn't make sense. Now, the Jewish scriptures go on to speak of Sodom and Gomorrah. They do it almost 20 times in Isaiah and Amos and Ezekiel. And all of these Jewish prophets communicate things about Sodom and Gomorrah, none of them. Not one of them mentions the topic of homosexuality. I could go on from here. I could give you a few more ideas or concepts related to this not being about this particular subject. It is not about homosexuality. In fact, I believe it has to do with an entirely different H word. So if we're going to examine the text from another perspective, the story is really a story about the importance of hospitality. Now remember, Genesis 18 is directly connected to Genesis 19. Genesis 18 starts like this. He, being Abraham, lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant." Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. They said, do as you have said. Now, as Christians within the church, we have used this particular passage from the earliest days of the church 
to teach about the concept of receiving strangers, of welcoming people with hospitality. And in fact, we have communicated that to welcome people with deep hospitality may in fact mean that at some point you welcome the Lord himself. Or, in the New Testament, we describe it this way, that you may entertain angels unaware. You might not be aware of the fact that you are sitting among the holy. Now, in Near Eastern culture, one of the things that was so vital was the tradition of opening your home to other people. This sign of hospitality was not considered just something you casually did. It was a spiritual duty. To neglect it was of the worst offense. It was almost a bigger measurement to what it meant to live and be a follower of Yahweh than worship or prayer. It would have been like on that same level. So if you worship God and you pray to God, one of the things that Yahweh will know is a symbol of your following him will be the way you demonstrate hospitality. Now the story goes on to say that Abraham finds these three men that come. He rushes out to meet them. He greets them. He says to them, let me give you a little bit of water. Let me give you a morsel for bread. But he goes above and beyond. The text tells us in the middle that he then runs back to the tent. He tells Sarah, his wife, make flour cakes. He goes and he tells a servant, I want you to get a fattened calf, which might sound familiar, and I want you to kill it, and then I want you to prepare it. And then he went, and the text said that he also grabbed curds and milk. So milk being this idea that there is a favor, right? Um, in fact, when they went to Canaan, it was a land flowing with milk and honey, right? So it's this idea that this is luxurious. He's going over the top to communicate his hospitality. And the righteousness of Abraham and Sarah were on full display. Their desire to follow Yahweh was completely evident by their actions in this particular moment. The angels then surprise him in the story with some interesting news. They say, Abraham, the real reason we came to meet you was to tell you that you're about to have a kid. And most of you know the story. He's like, yeah, that's not going to happen. I'm too old. And then Sarah laughs about it. And then they're like, no, seriously. And Sarah's like, well, I wasn't laughing. And they're like, you're lying. And there's this like story going on about this whole dynamic that's taking place, right? And all of it's communicating something beautiful about promises that God has for the people, right? Immediately after that interchange takes place, the text moves to this. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. So immediately after this interchange, and immediately after, hey, you're going to have a kid, is then the men looked at Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Immediately after that, most of you, again, knowing the story, know that Abraham then intercedes on behalf of Lot and the people. And he says, God, what if, is it possible that there will be 50 righteous men? And if there are, would you spare the city? And God has this like, Really interesting dialogue. Sure, if there's 50. 
but there's not 50. Okay, if there's 40, would you do it? Sure, if there's 40, but there's not 40. What about 30? And they're like in this barter back and forth all the way down to would you spare the city if there were 10 righteous? As soon as that conversation is over, chapter 19 starts, right? Chapter 19 being the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We just started reading it. The men arrive at the city, and then everything progresses. Now, when we project onto the text and allow cultural Christianity to tell people that it's a story about the punishment of homosexuality, what we allow the text to be used for is hatred rather than the importance of love. The story is about the need for radical hospitality and demonstrating deep love toward the foreigner, the poor, the stranger, the outcast, and the marginalized. Now, if you think, again, that that might not be true, I think it's important to consider even the words of Jesus. Jesus refers back in Matthew chapter 10 to this particular story, and he says this to his apostles. He sent them out to go preach and teach, and he says this, if anyone will not welcome you or demonstrate hospitality or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town. Truly, I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on that day of judgment than for that town. Again, speaking to this idea of hospitality. Now, I think it's important for us to consider, again, how does the text and how does history tell us that this is the case. What was so wicked about the city of Sodom? In Ezekiel, it makes it very clear. The text says this. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty, and they did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. Now, the Bible speaks to the sin of Sodom as being arrogance and overindulgence, indifference, a lack of charity for the poor and the needy, and even haughtiness or pride. It's about self-sitterness. It's about a lack of love for our neighbor. It's about a lack of hospitality. And history seems to support this very same idea. There are recordings in both the Talmud and the Midrash of the Jewish people where they tell tales of the city of Sodom. One of those tales, according to the Talmud, is that the Sodomites would establish a bed in their home or a bed in their little guest room. And uh, they had all the beds were the exact same size. So they would like lay out the bed, have the whole room ready, and when a visitor or a foreigner or an alien or someone not of their city would come in, they would greet them and welcome them and say, hey, why don't you stay with us? We have a, a bed, the perfect size for you. And when the person would lay down and measure out, if they didn't fit the bed exactly, the sodomites had a plan. And the plan was this, if you were too short for the exact dimensions of the bed, they would put you on a rack and stretch you until you were. And if you were too long and you happened to be a little bit tall, they would hack off your feet to make sure you fit. That was the way they are known for greeting the foreigners. In addition to that, there was signs throughout the city that would communicate, do not ever feed or give any 
alms to the poor. There are stories throughout, again, the Talmud and the Midrash where there would be men or women from Sodom who would sneak and give a beggar food. And over a period of a few days, if they didn't see the beggar getting worse, they would begin to investigate. When they found out who was guilty, the guilty party would be burned. Not the beggar, the person who showed kindness. In addition, there's another story. Whenever a beggar would come into town, all of the people of Sodom would greet them with welcome. So the beggar would go house to house. Do you have anything for me? I'm poor, I'm needy. And every single time they would give that beggar a coin. The gleeful beggar would then run to the market and go, I have, I have money, I can buy something. And every time they would go to purchase something, they would be rejected. Oh, we don't take that coin here. Oh, we don't take that coin. No, I'm sorry, that, that doesn't work here. Nope, we don't. And so they would go to another house and another house and another house. And every house they'd be given a coin. And they'd rush off to the market and do the same. And after days of getting nothing, they would die. And as soon as they would die, the town would know. And every sodomite would rush back out, grab their coin, because they had kindly put their initials on the back and then took it back to use the next time. And it was a game they played with visitors. It was a game they played with people. It shows the absolute culture of wickedness of the city of Sodom. It was a group of people without love, a group of people that demonstrated incredible inhospitality, hatred toward those outside. So this brings us to the idea of thinking about kingdom. This is where I think we have to approach the text with a kingdom set of eyes and ask the question, what does this story have to do with me? What does this story have to do with kingdom people living in today's world? Now it's clear, at least from my perspective, that the uh, evil of Sodom was not about, or at least according to the Old Testament prophets and based on our way of looking at the text, it had nothing to do with same-sex acts. Rather, the ancient Sodomites displayed incredible wickedness through an attempted gang rape, mob violence, and a callous indifference toward the weak and the vulnerable, the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the strangers in their midst. They were guilty of being inhospitable in radical and horrible ways. We acknowledge from this story that the people of Sodom did a list of things that I'll put on the screen. They were protective of their wealth. They guarded their gated community or city. They overindulged in their own pleasures. They fought against beggars disturbing their peace or impacting their business. They zoned out poverty. They sought to keep outsiders out. They excluded foreigners. They were a people of pride and envy. They were suspicious of acts of charity. They had cruelty toward orphans, and there was a deep perversion of justice. So I think all of those things beg us to ask a question. Do you ever wonder why the church in America seeks a different meaning to the story? Any chance that if I make the problem someone else's problem, I can avoid looking in the mirror? Any chance that scapegoating a group of people 
is easier than facing my own pride and arrogance. Maybe it's easier than facing my own overindulgence, my lack of care and empathy, my refusal to meet needs, my rejection of the immigrant, and my disdain for the beggar. Ironically, it might actually be us as Christians who are most guilty of the sin of Sodom. Perhaps it's us who are more guilty of it than we'd care to admit. Perhaps it's even us who are anti-gay at times that are more guilty of not having a heart for the marginalized or ignoring the cause of the poor or the needy. I believe that the kingdom calling, like we described last week, is difficult. It's challenging. It flies in the face of much of the values of the world. But a kingdom calling is one in which we have a posture and efforts on behalf of those who are in need. And it really, truly reveals our deepest values. I think that as kingdom people, we have an opportunity to do that by speaking up for the poor, by being people who welcome the migrant and the immigrant, by demanding equality for people of color, for working for the rights of transgender people, for being a people of inclusion to our gay brothers and sisters, living life with people of varying ability and disability, standing with marginalized groups and showing radical hospitality. Those are the ways of people of the kingdom. Christine Pohl, I'll end with this, makes this statement. As a way of life, an act of love, an expression of faith, our hospitality reflects and anticipates God's welcome. Simultaneously costly and wonderfully rewarding, Hospitality often involves small deaths and little resurrections. By God's grace, we can grow more willing, more eager to open the door to a needy neighbor, a weary sister or brother, a stranger in distress. Perhaps as we open that door more regularly, we will grow increasingly sensitive to the quiet knock of angels. In the midst of a life-giving practice, we too might catch a glimpse of Jesus who asks for our welcome and welcomes us home. Today, I want to conclude this talk by inviting you to the table. Jesus invites us to the table, and he does so by inviting us as a host. He's the one who sets the bread and the wine before us. He's the one that offers the invitation. He's the one that sits down to share the meal with us. Jesus is not just remembered in this meal. I believe he's also encountered. It is not we who welcome him. It is he who welcomes us. He is a friend of sinners. He shares his table with the righteous and the unrighteous. He welcomes the blind and the lame, and he is a king that is most gracious in his hospitality. So today, he invites you to the table. Let's pray. God, in these next few moments, as we reflect 
on your text as we reflect on the table, the invitation to eat and to drink and to remember you. May we be reminded that you are a hospitable king. May we be reminded that your kingdom is so upside down. It isn't the wealthy that are invited, but the poor. It isn't the perfect, but the broken. It isn't the strong, but the weak. It isn't the right, but the wrong. It is those that are neglected and marginalized. It is us that are in need of you. And so you invite us, and we come today eager to receive your hospitality. I pray that you might ignite in us a deeper, radical hospitality, a love for people, a willingness to extend ourselves to the marginalized. May that kingdom value speak deeply through this story. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
my fingertips I've hidden in the garden I've denied you my very lips God, I fall down to my knees my hammer in my hand You look at me open forgiven forgiven child there is freedom from all this say goodbye to every sin you are forgiven I've done things I wish I hadn't done. I've done things I wish I hadn't done. I've seen things I wish I hadn't seen. Just the thought of your amazing grace. I cry, Jesus, forgive me. God, I fall down to my knees. With a hammer in my hand, you look at me, arms open, forgiven, forgiven, child there is freedom from holding, say goodbye to every sin, you are fire but now there's fire inside of me here i am a dead man walking no grave gonna hold god's people all the weight of all our evil lifted away forever free who could believe who could believe forgiven forgiven you love me even when i don't deserve I'm forgiven. 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 You love me even when I don't deserve it. Forgiven. I'm forgiven. Jesus, your blood makes me innocent. So I will say goodbye to every sin. Will you guys stand? Sing this one more time with us. Forgiven. 